Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome to the Sex the Murder podcast. It is currently pelting down rain. When I sat down to record this, the heavens opened and now I have a kitchen full of water. I'm recording this the day of upload because I had so much to read. Let's go ahead and do this. There are many legends that have sprung forth from Pleasant Valley, Arizona. Perhaps the most famous of these stories involve two feuding families and a series of escalating shootouts over the course of nearly a decade. The conflicts, 1886 and 1887 being the bloodiest period of the feud, boasted a body count of 20 to 30, 19 of which directly the result of gunfights. Before we delve into some backstory on the country before the feud, let's acknowledge sources. The main source I'm working with today is Valley of the Guns, The Pleasant Valley War and the Trauma of Violence by Eduardo Obregon Pagan, which is a very comprehensive book that discusses as the title suggests, the psychological background and the events of Pleasant Valley War. The information was also taken from Hell on the Range by Daniel J. Herman. If you enjoy this subject, I could not recommend this book enough, as it really goes into so much detail about the culture of the time, and there's a lot of really interesting facts that help uh, keep you immersed into this story. One other thing. I normally convert units of measurement, I haven't in this instance because there was just too much and converting from old currency to new currency and then to Australian dollars is just a mess. Pleasant Valley has always been a site of violence. Pleasant Valley lay within a basin of cultural waters as it were, even prior to white settlers. A marketplace of trade thrived amongst the Native American nations and these native trade networks held strong even as the American military restricted the movements of the southwestern tribes, particularly the Navajo and the Apache. The Apache in particular had a, let's say, difficult adjustment period being moved to a reservation to the east of Pleasant Valley. Apache raiders frequently ripped through the lands, and the main object for many of these raids were cattle. This put them at odds with the owners of said cattle, and usually there was bloodshed. Settlers would keep themselves armed at all times and remain constantly on the lookout for a lightning raid, to the point of paranoia. They built their homesteads like fortresses. In the walls, they would cut out V-shaped gun ports, providing them with maximum lateral mobility from a fixed position. Two gun ports on each wall meant eight points of defense. There would be a hole above the head of the bed, another at the foot of it. One above the kitchen table, two on either side of the fireplace three in the adjacent corner. There wouldn't be a place in the cabin that wasn't more than a couple of steps away from a gun port. These ports also allowed occupants to keep an eye on their cattle and maybe get a heads up for any visitors that might approach, friendly or not. In 1877, Brigham Young sent Mormon families to settle in Navajo and Apache country. William Jordan Flake led a colonizing party south from Utah through the desert until they found some well-stocked lands thanks to the Little Colorado River. They found at a little slither of a waterway called Silver Creek housed a man named James Stinson from Massachusetts. He claimed the land by squatter's rights. 
Stinson at first wanted $12,000 for his land, which if my calculations are right, turns out to be a bargain considering how much large amounts of land go for here in New South Wales. He would settle on a reduced price in a substantial herd of cattle, specifically the Midwestern cattle that the Mormons had brought along with them. Now these cattle were worth quite a bit more than the local cattle, which meant Stinson left the valley possibly richer than if he had just settled for the money. Either way, Flake's colony planted their roots in the area, and that became known as Stinson's Valley. Trade with neighboring settlements and towns flourished. The Mormon settlers branched out and even began to seek office to establish themselves as a commercial power within the region, even though Mexican and Indian trade partners violently opposed them. Around this time is when we enter one of the two major families involved in the feud, the Tewksburys. Around this time is when we enter one of the two major families involved in the feud, the Tewksburys. James Dunning Tewksbury, Jim to his friends, left his state of Maine 20 years prior to try panning in Northern California. In Pacific Township, he met his first wife, an Indian woman from Bear River Clan, which would make her Algonquian, I think? Jim Tewksbury's homestead was located along Eel River, which placed it close to several villages of the Bear River Clan. He would come to learn their language and became fluent enough to be called upon uh, to interpret for like crises and stuff like that. There's no document of his wife's name, but we know that she gave birth to five children, John, Edwin, Frank, James, and Elvira. Jim would leave California a single man with the kids in tow. Tewksbury tradition says his wife died of consumption, that is TB. He left in 1875 and was in Tepe by the fall of 1879, when he married a woman named Lydia Marston Krigler Schultz. Lydia's family was originally Welsh, and had travelled to Arizona with the Mormons. She was 13 when she had a baby with a man named Rufus Krigler. Now we don't know what happened to him, but three years later, Lydia was married to a German immigrant named David Schultz. Ten years later, they moved towns, and David contracted typhoid fever and died. The two families blended, and the four boys moved out of home. The same year, Elvira also moved out, having married Henry Ernest Albert Slozer of Prussia. Away from home now and seeking their prospects, the four Tewksbury boys were forerunners when it came to ranching in Pleasant Valley, though they weren't the first. That honour went to a Swede named Albus Ruse, Americanized to Al Rose, who would become a key player in the feud later down the track. John was the oldest of the boys at 24. 22-year-old Edwin tended to keep to himself, but he would never back down from a fight. 19-year-old Frank was frail and frequently sick. Finally, 17-year-old James, again known as Jim, was an impulsive young lad. Because few people lived in the valley, the brothers had the pick of their land. It was near the rocky foothills along Cherry Creek where they chose to build their ranch. In 1880, there were less than half a dozen small ranches spread through the 7,600 acres of Pleasant Valley, most being small-time farmers who at once had ideas of striking it big with gold. All in all, there weren't more than 250 people in the entire area of Tonto Basin. Most of these were men, single, ranging from their early 20s to early 50s, 
a mix of life experiences, nationalities, and races. Despite the differences, though, there was an unspoken expectation of cooperation. Half of the initial settlers were related, as in they had relatives also working with them, not half of them were related to one another. Charles Sixby, 44, was the brother of Garrett, otherwise known as Bob. Edvard Ruse, Ed Rose, 49, joined his brother Al Rose. And though they weren't related, Joseph Baker, 23, shared a cabin with Louis O. Houdon, 41, and Jacob Jake Lawfer, 23, as well. A man called George Church, 52, lived alone. James and Lydia Tewksbury were the only multi-generational family in Pleasant Valley, and of the 13 children, half of them were Tewksbury's. Older boys became very protective of the younger children, even more so when Lydia's seven-year-old Anna drowned in a flash flood. That wasn't the only danger. The land was home to mountain lions, bears, and would have violent thunderstorms, and the Apache were always a present element of danger. At the end of August, a group of embittered renegade Apaches swept through Pleasant Valley, stealing horses, cattle, and ammunition, burning everything they couldn't take with them. September 1st, they laid siege to a fort in the reservation in a fight that would become known as the Battle of Fort Apache. Legend has it that the following day, a group of Apache warriors rode out to a ranch owned by blacksmith William Middleton, located 30 miles south of Pleasant Valley. Mere moments before the Apache arrived, Two neighbours sped up on their horses to the homestead. Henry Moody and George Turner Jr. warned of the uprising at Fort Apache. While the Apache were armed to the teeth, they were friendly and showed no signs of antagonism towards the Middleton family as they rode up. Middleton himself thought that they were scouts as the army frequently used Native Americans as scout riders and inquired if the news of the fort was true. The Apache assured them that it wasn't, before pulling out their weapons and firing at the Middleton family. One of the children, a teenager, Henry Harry Middleton, caught a bullet that ripped through his bowels. Harry asked for a pair of scissors from his mother after they fled to their cabin, trimmed the protruding section of bowel, propped himself up at one of the gun ports, and defended the cabin and his family for three hours until the Apache relented. He died in the arms of his family. It's a good story, but it's very much a story. Fabrication. And I don't understand why, since the real story is a little bit more interesting. Deputy Sheriff George Turner convinced his friend Henry Moody to join him as he rode to the Middleton Ranch to warn them of the battle, mostly because Middleton Ranch was a rather isolated area close to the reservation. The deputy thought it would be best that they knew so that they could be ready for any sort of surprise raid. The Middletons hadn't actually seen any Apache for quite a while, and those that they had, they were on good terms with them. The family went about their chores for the morning. Miriam Middleton took the younger kids to the milk house, located behind the cabin, to churn some butter. George Turner followed to get a cup of buttermilk. William Middleton and 13-year-old Willis were making butter boxes in the yard. 16-year-old Haiti 
sat sewing near the front door, and Henry Moody sat in front of her, just chatting. Henry Middleton, eldest of the kids, made himself busy in the cabin. Apaches appeared at the ranch, one climbing a pile of wood at the edge of the fence around the house, casting an eye over everyone. Now, despite the news about the renegade Apaches, the Middletons didn't have any reason to suspect this group. They had plenty of contact with them in the past, and they hadn't come up riding with, you know, their arms bared or anything like that. One Apache calmly walked up onto the porch and asked for a kettle. Now, the Middletons frequently traded with these people and were happy to oblige. Haiti got up and gave him a kettle. A group of Apache made their way to the milk house and asked Miriam for a loaf of bread. Miriam sent 10-year-old Della to fetch the loaf. Della returned and gifted them the bread. The Apaches appeared to leave when the one on the woodpile shouted. Shots from all directions tore through the air. A bullet clipped the lock of Hades' hair, continued on and nailed Moody right in the eye, casting the back of his head onto the cabin's back wall. George Turner, standing with a cup of buttermilk, was hit with the first volley as well. William Middleton had two close calls, one bullet shooting through his hat and another through his shirt. The family only had one weapon on the ranch, which Henry Middleton grabbed and returned fire. He wounded one Apache who was sprinting to the milk house. Miriam was quick on action as well, closing the milk house window and barring the door. Henry ran around the house to fire at another group of Apaches, and William raced into the cabin, Willis in tow. Standing up from behind an embankment, one Apache raised his gun, lined up the sights, and fired, hitting Henry in the shoulder. Hades screamed from the cabin. Miriam unbarred the door, bolted to the cabin with the children in tow, where the family would be safe for the time. Inside, they barred the door with chairs and tables and laid on the floor. Bullets ripped through the walls. Miriam prayed that they would all be spared. Bullets continued to riddle the cabin until sunset. Traditionally, Apache gave up on raids around about sunset. And, true as it was, the gunfire stopped. And they got away, taking the Middleton's horse herd with them, leaving just a single horse which was wounded. It wasn't until 1am before any of them dared to move, to peek out. In the cover of night, William shuffled his family to a safe spot up a rocky outcrop. Then he took his only horse, the wounded one, to seek out help from within Pleasant Valley. Before leaving, William told Miriam that if he did not return by morning, she was not to go looking for him. The next morning he returned from Pleasant Valley with George Church, who had himself a rifle and one cartridge left. The mood was somber as he told Miriam how Pleasant Valley had been sacked by raiding Apaches, who stole horses and burned the cabins. Al Rose intended to join them, but he had been attacked at the settlement as Middleton and Church fled. Along Cherry Creek, Apaches harassed the two men, forcing them to take a longer route, winding to the back of the Middleton Ranch. It was death to stay where they were, with no provisions and little shelter. Travelling would be dangerous as well, but they would have a chance that way. They used the little-known route to get to Globe City, everyone alert for any potential attacks. Miriam refused to return to the ranch after that, after bunkering down at Globe City, William sold what was left of his stock and ranched two businessmen, George A. Newton and J.J. J. Vosberg.
This speed of attacks would die down come winter 1881 before picking back up in 1882 during a celebration of a new railroad that went through Holbrook. The San Carlos Reservation was attacked by the same Apache men from earlier. Four Apache policemen were killed and a dozen Apache women were kidnapped. They moved through more ranches similar to the Middletons, killing eight more Apaches who worked for the US military, as well as six ranches. They hit resistance at the Macmillanville settlement though. Silver miners banded together and successfully repelled the Apache. By middle of July 1882, 250 mounted warriors once again went through the basin. This was the first recorded time that they stole horses from the Tewkesbury Ranch, as well as Ed Rose's ranch. Neighbours Charles Sixby and Lewis Hudson had been found near Hagler Creek, dead for a couple of days. The official report describes the scene, quote, Both men were naked, laying face up, and bore many marks of torture inflicted on them before they died. Their feet and hands had been burned. One had a large rock on his stomach. The other had been hacked wide open and his entrailed, pulled out onto the ground. And now we enter the second family of the feud when Ed Tewksbury was at Globe City. He struck up a conversation with an Irish-born miner named John Graham. Fed up with mining, he and his brother Tom had packed up and come to Arizona, their eyes on a new venture of cattle. Since, all done well, you can get $40 a head. Ed invited the brothers to look at Pleasant Valley. They had plenty of shared experiences. Mothers lost when they were young, time in California. They were all young and eager to work. For the next few months, the Graham brothers tended to the Stinson herd to the north before making a more permanent settlement in Pleasant Valley. The brothers are probably what you think of more so when you think of like a traditional cowboy. A 45 strapped to their hips, Winchester rifle in a saddle holster. Their belts were lined with rounds of pistol and rifle cartridges. On their boots were heavy spurs that clanked as they walked. With the Tewksbury boys, they built a one-room cabin about five miles up from the Tewksbury's own ranch. The cattle that they purchased were Mormon cattle that cost more, but were worth oh so much more. The Graham brothers hired Jim Tewksbury to help them drive the new herd down from the Mormon settlement of Snowflake. It only took them a couple of nights. Aztec and Cattle Company had brought up large swaths of land in Pleasant Valley. Edward Wilkinson Kingsley, who had served in the Civil War, arranged a purchase from A&P Railroad of 1 million acres at 50 cents an acre, along with 33,000 longhorns and about 2,000 horses. Hashknife Outfit, as it became known, located its headquarters in Holbrook, Arizona. 80 men in all signed to ride with the new company, though that many really wasn't necessary. Railroads covered most of the land. Long cattle drives really weren't a thing. So the Hashknife Cowboys tended to get a little bored and a little rowdy and began to raid the range of the Rim country. Many of the settlers there believed these men were desperados, driven out of state by lawmen. Local settlers really began to hate the Aztec Land and Cattle Company as they aggressively asserted their ownership of the land. 
If prosecuting in the court of law failed, they would simply have some of the hash knife outfit right in with pistols drawn. And with the railroads, there was an influx of cattle rustling. Stolen livestock was a temptation for anyone with dubious morals, keen for a quick buck. Stealing livestock from a neighbor or an employer was often more lucrative than owning a herd. Pleasant Valley settlers were always suspicious of missing animals. And it's not like there wasn't a shortage of buyers. Mexico gladly bought cattle without checking correct ownership, as did many residents of Salt River Valley. I mean, why would you question cheap meat? William Jordan Flake rode out one day to track down some stolen horses. He came across three armed men and recognized one as Lewis Parker. Now, Parker was the nephew of the Graham brothers, and the horse that he rode on was Flake's. They asked Flake what he was doing. Flake replied that he was looking for his stolen horses and that he had found one. You're riding one of them, he told them. Peter asked if he would like to take the horse from him. Flake backed down and told Parker that they would meet again. Now, there isn't any concrete evidence to suggest that the Grahams were involved with cattle rustling, but one could connect the dots. Parker was close to the Grahams, and they were the ones who wouldn't shy away from another profit-making opportunity, especially one so easy. They may have simply turned their eyes as men in their employ watered and fed stolen cattle on their land. Stinson got sick of his losses to his herd on the rim, and in 1883 he moved his herd to Pleasant Valley and hired locals to keep an eye on them both. The Tewksburys and the Grahams were hired. As it seems to be in human nature, Pleasant Valley residents began to band together in loose confederations that would eventually come at one another. There weren't violent assaults, but rather tons of litigation. Johnny Graham accused neighbors of stealing Stinson's cattle, but not before securing a contract with Stinson that rewarded him for his testimony. Over the next five years, a pattern would emerge of settlers taking to the courts to try and drive neighbors out. Ed Tewksbury sat in a saloon at Payson when a man named George Gladden entered, boasting about the two men he had just killed in self-defense. He offered to buy everyone a shot, everyone except Ed. I will not drink with the black man, he exclaimed. Without correcting him that he wasn't actually black, Ed hit Gladden on both sides of his face, stunning him. The saloon was quiet as they waited. Ed hit Gladden again. Ed demanded that Gladden draw his guns. Gladden ran from the saloon, shouting for his rifle. Ed followed and told him to walk out the right distance and place, and we'll shoot it out. Gladden ran and did not look back. Ed Tewksbury was a man who could easily match social violence with physical violence. The calm at which he had did this also showed that he had done this many times before. We now have plenty of information on the background of some of the parties involved. Let's get into what some would consider the first real shootout in Pleasant Valley. January 1883, three men rode to John Tewksbury's ranch. It was a small half-built one-room cabin. A barn nearby was still under construction 
and there wasn't much larger than their house. Around the land were some rudimentary pens. To introduce the three men, Apeticio Ruiz, 48, and a native New Mexican who served Stinson as his cook. 25-year-old John Cullen Gilliand, the range foreman, and 14-year-old Elisha Gilliand. It was at Stinson's request that they were there to give the Tewksbury's a chance to rectify the cattle that had mistakenly been branded as theirs. Stinson had originally promised persecution. Even after the Tewksbury's offered to return the cattle, his change of heart is what brought the men out today. 10am, the Tewksbury brothers were working on their cabin with the Graham brothers. Francis Tewksbury was half a mile away with a wagon of supplies. Johnny Graham was 200 yards away fishing out stones from the creek to make a hearth. Tom Graham was splitting some logs and Ed was working on a fuse to blast holes into the ground for posts. Jim was working away at a small foundry. The elder Gilliand rode up first, followed by Elisha and Apeticio. John had a six-shooter, Elisha his six-shooter and a Winchester rifle, and Apeticio a holstered pistol. Of the Tewksbury's and Graham's, only Ed was armed with a small pistol in his pants pocket. Ed asked, who are we looking for? You, you son of a bitch, Gillian said as he drew his pistol. Whether he intended to shoot it or it was actually an accidental discharge, doesn't matter, the shot went straight over Ed's head. Ed pulled out his pistol and fired at Gillian. Gillian returned a second shot, which also went wide, but hit Johnny Graham's hat and lodged into the wall next to Jim Tewksbury's head. Tom and Jim scrambled for their iron hanging inside the cabin. Apeticio tried to pull his gun, but it was tied down and he panicked. His horse went absolutely wild. Elisha froze on the spot. Tewksbury stood his ground and fired two more shots, the second tearing a hole in Gillian's elbows. Gillian fired a third time and missed again. Elisha spurred his horse around and charged up the creek, followed by the others. Elisha would fall from his horse a ways up and scream that he had been killed. In truth, he had just been hit in the hip and would live. Investigations were made. John and Elisha's wounds weren't lethal, but the state wanted to press charges on both John Gillian and Ed Tewksbury for assault with attention to kill. Four months later, the territory of Arizona versus Ed Tewksbury and John Gillian commenced. The state only wanted to know who fired first and who was legally right to defend himself. Two days of testimony, the jurors couldn't support either charge, so both men were found not guilty. Okay, so it's not exactly the end of Young Guns, but this was just the beginning. The shootout marked the start of a bad year for the Tewksbury family. First, Frank died from the measles, then Jim, desperate for cash, thought it was a good idea to rob an Arizona Cooperative Merchantile Incorporated store in Woodruff, along with George Blaine. They made off with 50 bucks, a pistol, and hey, some cans of peaches. Score! One of the clerks recognized him, though, even with their faces covered. Over the summer months, the Grahams and the Tewksbury's had a falling out. It, it's lost to time. What caused the rift? Neither family recorded it, and neither really spoke of it. Fall of 1883, Johnny Graham met with Stinson and entered into a contractual agreement 
Johnny would give Stinson evidence that would lead to the arrest and conviction of anyone stealing Stinson's cattle in exchange for 25 cows and 25 calves, each worth $25. Now, that might just sound like a setup, but really the amount of losses Stinson had suffered to his herds, it'd be well worth the $1,250 for information that stopped it. The day after the contract was recorded with the county, Graham visited the office of the district attorney Charles B. Rush in Prescott and filed a complaint against six of his Pleasant Valley neighbours, including three Tewksbury brothers. He swore that these men had altered brands on both Stinson cattle and Graham cattle. According to Osma Flake, the Grahams were initially involved in the rustling that preyed upon the Stinson's herd and the accusations were simply a way of throwing suspicions away from themselves. A grand jury subpoenaed six witnesses on the 7th of June, 1884. The results, four indictments of grand larceny against six Pleasant Valley residents, John, Ed, and Jim Tewksbury, William Richards, Herbert H. Bishop, and George Blaine. All were arrested the same day, though John and Ed were able to post bail with the support of Bob Sixby and Al Rose. Jim Tewksbury was charged with three of the rustling charges, Blaine on one. In early July 1884, another warrant was issued for two boys in relation to the ACMI robbery. In order to post bail for Jim, the Tewksbury put up their ranch and all its assets as collateral when they turned to the Dag brothers for help. The criminal trial continued to move forward for the six residents. They had some solid witnesses though. Witnesses that testified to the whereabouts of the Graham brothers when they were supposed to have witnessed the crimes. The defense also presented the jury with Johnny and Stinson's contract. Either the jury believed the Grahams and the defendants were guilty, or they didn't believe the Grahams and everyone was not guilty. The jury chose the latter, and the men were found not guilty. Then Jim's trial for robbery was thrown out. The main witness that the case rested on, Joseph Fish, the clerk who had seen the boys' faces, failed to attend, having fled to Mexico to avoid charges against himself of bigamy. Uh, even though anger flashed through the groups in Pleasant Valley, Stinson thought it was a good idea to schedule a meeting on the 23rd of July, 1884, for everyone to come by and organize a roundup. Georgie Blaine, William Richards, John Tewksbury, and Ed Rose rode to Stinson's Ranch, just a few miles north of Tewksbury's Ranch, a few miles southeast of the Grahams. At Stinson's, they found five hired hands, along with Marion McCann, who was deputy sheriff of a nearby county. McCann told Blaine, Richards, and Tewksbury that he didn't want nothing to do with them and dismissed everyone except Ed Rose. Blaine and Tewksbury told him that they could go wherever the damn well they pleased. Blaine called McCann a son of a bitch multiple times. McCann picked up his Winchester rifle and stepped away from the ranch house. He stopped right in front of Blaine. William Richards spurred his horse into a full gallop. Blaine wheeled his horse around as well, but stopped only a few strides away and pulled his horse back around. Blaine pulled out his revolver and shot at McCann. McCann squeezed off a startled shot and Blaine dropped to the ground, holding his throat. John Tewksbury pulled his gun and shot at McCann, but the bullet went wide. 
McCann returned fire and hit Tewksbury, but the wound was superficial. Two Stinson men rushed to Blaine and dragged him into the shade. They washed his wound and sent others for help. Now despite being hit in the neck, the wound wasn't lethal. The doctor would go on to remove an inch-long sliver of bone and a molar that had been driven deep into his neck by the bullet. In the trial against McCann for assault and murderous intent, the judge found his actions to be self-defense and the territory chose not to press charges against Blaine or Tewksbury, despite probably having cause to do so. After the six men were found not guilty for cattle rustling, J.J. Vosberg and Al Rose filed a complaint against the Grahams for perjury. A warrant went out for their arrest. The Grahams weren't behind bars for long, having convinced Stinson and former county sheriff John R. Walker to post bail for them, $2,000 each. In October 1884, the Tewksbury's were welcoming another into their family, and the Grahams were skipping their court date. The overwhelmed court simply put the case on pause for another date. Fine for the Grahams, since they didn't have to answer for their crimes, but this meant that their bail was forfeit. Stinson and Walker had just lost $4,000. William Atkinson, a rancher who lived in the county over, received a letter that stated two of his missing cows, missing for two years, mind you, had been found in the herd of Johnny and Tom Graham. Jim Tewksbury was a witness to the cows being taken. The letter was signed... James Stinson. Atkinson was a member of the Stock Association and they got Car Blessing Game to investigate. May 1885, he rode out to Pleasant Valley hoping to persuade Jim Tewksbury to swear on what he saw. Blessing Game offered him some money in exchange for helping him find more evidence. Jim agreed. Even with all the evidence, the judge was reluctant to sign the indictment. He was worried that this would cause an all-out war in the rising tensions of Pleasant Valley. This judge, evidently, was very good at reading the room. Blessingame, however, was undeterred. After visiting the Tewksbury's again, Blessingame, along with Deputy Sheriff Oscar Felton, Ed Rose, Bob Sixby, and Ed and Jim Tewksbury, rode out to the Graham's ranch. Johnny, Tom, and Lewis Parker were all there at the ranch when the party arrived. Jim pointed to the offending cows. Grahams protested, insisting that the cows had been purchased legally from Flake, who purchased them from Atkinson. Tom drew up a statement, and the case went before the Apache County Grand Jury in May 1885, charging the Grahams with stealing cattle. During the trial, the brothers were resolute in their testimonies. Atkinson denied selling the cows to anyone, however, and the court held the case to reconvene a week and a half later. The Grahams left St. John's to gather their own witnesses. Take a wild guess what happened when the court was reconvened. That's right, no Grahams. A warrant went out for their arrest. This case would be thrown out, as no one really had time to wait around for a trial. Apache County did ask Felton to proceed to Pleasant Valley to arrest the men, but Felton straight up refused. He might have been a witness in the case, but he refused to get involved further in the feud. He could sense it was heading for disaster and wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. And once the papers got a hold of the story, it spread like wildfire that the brothers were liars. It was quite a statement back then against a man to call him a liar, and so the Graham circle of friends in Pleasant Valley shrunk. 
This would encourage their associations with drifters and strangers whose activities were highly suspect. Speaking of which, time to introduce some more key players into this drama. Brothers Andrew and Charlie Blevins made their way into Pleasant Valley by murder. That is, 30 miles northeast of the Pleasant Valley settlement lived John and Will Adams, unassuming Mormon cattlemen. Nothing flashed, but the Blevins decided that they wanted this place for their own. And so Andrew, who currently was on the run from the law for rustling and killing a sheriff under the alias of Andy Cooper, held the Adams at gunpoint and told them that they could leave this ranch or he would send them to heaven. The Adams left Arizona. The Blevinses quickly became one of the chief suppliers in the illicit livestock trade, preying mostly on the Mormon settlements atop the Rim and the Navajo Apache reservations. In April 1887, they stole 103 Navajo horses and drove them down to their ranch. A party consisting of Navajo and white settlers intercepted them, and after a gun battle, the Navajo recovered their horses. Bonnie Stevens Hunt records another clash that they had with Native Americans. While they were in her store buying potatoes, a, quote, large band of Indians painted for war rode into the valley crying out. They were angry about their stolen horses. Blevins survived this encounter by pure coincidence that a shop nearby was cooking bread and offered it to the hungry warriors who accepted it and left without a fight. In the winter of 1886, Dags had 7,000 sheep move from his Pleasant Valley ranch on their way to market. 1,000 of their sheep would be wintered with John Tewksbury on his land. Some historians believe that this was one instance of a large conspiracy to drive the smallest settlers off their land as the increase in mouths hurt the already strained resources of the land at the time. The introduction of so many sheep was also a flame to the moths that were the rustlers. And Dags really struggled with the theft. 1887 began with a head count 700 less than they expected. One of Dags' sheep herders turned up dead. The death was not an accident. His body was found in an alcove and a rocky wall in Cherry Creek. His body was riddled with gunshot wounds. Oh, and he had also been completely decapitated. According to Pleasant Valley law, Native American trackers followed footprints near the body back to Graham land, the implication being that one of the Grahams had done it. Now, I doubt that since there were plenty of people that would have pushed for a conviction if there was sufficient evidence against them. some point, the hash knife cowboys uh, were suspected because they were frequently at odds with law enforcement, but there's a big difference between shooting someone and decapitating someone. It was documented, however, that one group had a common enough practice of decapitating victims, and that was the Apaches. Without solid evidence, either the Apaches did it, or someone else did it to make it look like an Apache did it. The second was the most common thought amongst settlers of the time. Spring 1887, livestock was still being stolen and herders were being murdered in open air. Jake Lawfer, who boarded with Ed Rose, brought charges against some hash knife men for stealing horses. Within weeks of Lawfer's suit, four Mexican sheep herders had a running gun battle with about 25 white American cowboys near a railway line. An earthquake 
on top of all that, that measured 7.2 on the Richter scale, at least by modern estimates, shook the Earth for at least 30 seconds. Now, overall, the loss of life and damage was minimal, but that was taking into account the full range of the quake. In some spots, it was strong enough to destroy houses completely and damage others. In southern Arizona, it was reported that water geysers opened up and flooded dry creek beds. Papers reported that they found men on ranches tending to herds fallen stone dead, apparently dying of fright. This event caused some more tensions with the Apaches to surface. One leader of the White Mountain Apaches declared that the earth was growing old and that there would be more quakes and eventually the world would be shaken clean to start over again. A little bit of a religious fervor took hold of many Apaches in the area and they began stockpiling arms, ammunition and liquor. I guess they were early doomsday preppers. Newspapers across Arizona raised cries of expulsion or extermination. That was the only solution. Quote, Apaches must be removed from this territory. If not, then it's the duty of Arizonians to kill them wherever and whenever they be found. The previous position of benevolence towards the Apache was reversed by Governor Conrad Meyer Zulik, and he gave a speech in Phoenix harshly criticizing the Apaches and calling for their complete removal from the territory. Now, it might seem a little bit irrelevant, but keep in mind, the Tewksburys were part Native American. This would affect how they would be seen by the public and potential witnesses. In early August, the older boys, Andrew, Charlie, and Hamp Blevins, turned a herd of horses out to gaze while they went to Holbrook for a week to purchase supplies. The following morning, Mart Blevins, their father, discovered the herd gone. Mart went back to the cabin and took off with neighbor John Dement to track the horses. Dement rode for two days with Blevins, but returned after four without him. He told Anne Blevins that her husband wanted to continue looking for the herd, and he parted ways a mile from the Middleton Ranch. She sent the older Blevin boys to look for their father as soon as they returned from Holbrook. Indeed, Mart had continued on, but he would never return. No one knows why or what happened to him. Mike Burns, a contemporary interpreter at the San Carlos Reservation, recalls that soon after the earthquake, a runner came up to the San Carlos Reservation bearing news that a white man had been killed on the reservation. No one could tell the identity of the man. He'd been burned beyond recognition, and hoof prints littered the ground around the man, almost as if he'd been thrown under a herd of horses. The Blevins boys searched for a day and a half before giving up. They couldn't find any tracks. Returning home, they resupplied and divided up, traveling in different directions this time. Hampton went east, Herber met with the hash knife cowboys to ask for help, John Payne, Tom Tucker, Bob Glapsey, Bob Carrington, and three others volunteered to help search for the Blevins Patriarch. Before leaving the hash knife camp, these guys loaded up on guns and ammunition. I say loaded up, I mean loaded up. They left without a pack horse or any supplies other than that of war. 9th of August, 1887, after spreading out and zigzagging along Canyon Creek, the party caught a sight of smoke and the smell of meat. It was the old Middleton's place. George Newton wasn't there, but his brother-in-law, George Wilson, was, along with Jim Tewksbury. They were curing beef, 
when the Blevins' party arrive. As they approach, Jim cracked the door open. The cowboys ask for some supper. No, sir, was Jim's reply. We ain't running no hotel here. Hidden behind the door, his hand held a cocked Winchester rifle. George stood ready in the corner with a shotgun. John Payne called him a black son of a bitch, and Jim Tewksbury began firing. Hamp Levens immediately fell from his saddle, shot through the head. Tucker, Clapsy, and Carrington dug their spurs into their horses, fleeing. Another bullet ripped clean through Tucker's ribs underneath his arms. Carrington dodged the bullet meant for him, receiving a hole in the shirt. Clapsy was shot in the knee, the bullet passing through into his horse, which collapsed moments later. John Payne spun around in his saddle and managed a shot before his horse too collapsed underneath. As he struggled to get out from under the horse, a bullet tore his ear off. He got loose and began to run. Half a dozen steps and he had a bullet sink into his back. Carrington and Tucker rode hard until Tucker finally fell out of his saddle. He had lost a lot of blood. Carrington left him for dead, but Tucker wasn't dead yet. For 40 hours he dragged himself along, inch by inch until he collapsed to fatigue. And get this, a mother bear and her cubs tried to have a go at him, but he managed to frighten them off. He finally managed to get to Al Rose's ranch some 17 miles away. Bob Sixby took Tucker in, dressing the still open wound that had become filled with blowflies and maggots. Bob Glaspy lay still until the shooting stopped, then crawled across the open ground into a wooded area for concealment. He bound his wound with his underwear, making sure to treat it with some tobacco first. I'm sure there's a scientific explanation for it, how it reduces blood flow and promotes healing or something. It's just humorous for me to imagine that he lights a cigarette and after a few puffs, his health meter rises. For two nights and three days, he slowly limped along the creek bed until he reached the Blevins Ranch. Once there, he told Anne Blevins the news about her boy, Hamp. Key moment here, he told them who had fired the killing shot. Tewksbury. News of Hamp's murder crushed the Blevins. Bob Gillespie insisted that they were simply asking for a meal at the Middleton Ranch and that their attack was entirely unprovoked. The Blevins viewed Hamp's death as a callous murder of a lad who was just looking for his father, murdered by, quote, desperado half-blooded Indians. After the shootout, Jim Tewksbury and George Wilson fled the Middleton Ranch. When they returned a few days later, they found the ranch reduced to ashes. Bob Carrington and Charlie Blevins immediately began to recruit people to their cause. The first that they turned to was Johnny Graham and Lewis Parker. Graham in turn recruited Lewis Neglin, as well as Al Rose and Ed Rose. A dozen settlers rode out to Middleton Ranch, 10th of August, 1887. The place was abandoned, just some hogs and chickens roaming about. The dead horses lay on the road among the bodies of Blevins and Payne. Using the fencing as coffins, they buried the bodies. After cooking some dinner as they were preparing to leave, Charlie Blevins said, quote, Damn that shanty ought to be burnt down. News of the arson reached Lydia and Marianne Tewksbury, who immediately told George Newton what had happened to his property. Newton rode out to investigate, but it was a total loss. Everything was destroyed. 
Lewis Parker during this time had rode west to swear complaints for the murder of John Payne and H. Blevins against James Dunning Tewkesbury. George Wilson wasn't too far behind him, swearing an arson complaint against the members of the burial party, Alrose, Miguel Apodaca, Lewis Parker, William Bonner, and two other men. And here is where we will end this episode of Sex and Murder. Join us next time on part two, where we will see the law fail and men turn to vigilante justice, exacting revenge, eye for an eye. Thank you for listening.